Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, which can be found in page 1211 at your Pew Bibles. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you care enough about us, that you spoke into history, you sent your son for us, and you ensured that there was something tangible for us to dive into. But words on a page are sometimes so opaque to us. And God, this morning we pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you're speaking new to us this morning. We pray that you would send your spirit into our midst, that you would help us to unpack and to understand what you're calling us to what you're speaking into our lives individually and our life as a community here at Knox. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alvin started this off by reminding us that this season of the church, that is most of the church year, is called Ordinary Time. And we've been going through with ordinary time since Pentecost, looking at the story of the church. That's what this season is about, and it's why it's the longest section of our year, because the church has a long story, a big history, and we are a part of it, and so it's important that we root ourselves in this story, that we understand the history of faith that we are a part of. Last week, we looked at even just this season of the year and this season of our lives that the summer means for many of us. A time when we're looking to relax, go on vacation, find much needed rest. And yet the lectionary and the church year has us reading texts like today's. Texts like 2 Corinthians 6, and I think that's by no mistake. 
that when we're just settling into our year and our rhythms and finding a little break and a little rest, reading scripture, we're reminded that that's not always what life has in store for us. That if that's not what we're feeling this time of year, that's okay too. That God's still calling us to something and working something in our lives. And I think the text for today reveals some very unexpected things for us, a couple of unexpected things for us and a couple of unexpected things for the communities and the people around us who we serve about what Christian life and what Christian ministry means and is supposed to be like. The first unexpected thing I think might actually be known to many of you who've been part of this community for a long time. While I was studying in my undergrad, I would come up to Toronto for a week every summer to visit my best friend and to explore the city. And if I was here on a Sunday, I would come to Knox. As a visitor reading the bulletin, something struck me. At the bottom of one of the last pages, there's a section that says who all the staff are and who all the chairs of all the committees are. And in that section, there used to be a heading that said ministers. And underneath that heading, it said the Congregation of Knox. You are the ministers of this church. It may not appear in the bulletin anymore, but it's no less true today than it was back then. You minister God's grace to each other in the life of this community and to the places and the people that you go back to when you leave this building. And this is the kind of reality that Paul was aware of as he wrote those words that we just had read to us. In fact, just before that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, that God, having reconciled us to himself, has now given us this ministry through Christ. And if we as a community are responsible for ministry, then we are ministers. This basic idea that if you believe in Jesus and have been reconciled to God through him, you are now a minister of the gospel to this world is really the first thing that you need to accept for anything else that I'm going to say or unpack to make any sense or have any impact on your life and the ministry that you are called to as well. Because I think many Christians don't expect to be ministers we expect to be ministered to. That's why we come to church on Sundays or why we pray to God. We want and yes, we need to be ministered to. And sometimes it doesn't cross our minds that we should be also be the ones doing ministry. But the thing is that God ministers to us so that we might minister to others. This is the flow of the Christian life. Every good gift of love and mercy and grace that we receive, we're expected to turn outward toward our communities, to make known to people who are far from God and people who are desperately searching for those good gifts of God that we experience readily as a blessing. So you have to acknowledge that you, as part of this body of Christ, are a minister because 2 Corinthians is at its core a letter from a wounded pastor to the people who he serves and longs to see serve others. But this passage itself is about ministry in general, a ministry that you and I are both equally called to. And Paul's testimony concerning this ministry to the Corinthians offers a unique insight for us and the ministry that we're being led into the ministry that Jesus is asking us to partner with him in, 
and the sometimes difficult road that is ahead of us. Paul, talking about his ministry and the ministry which we join him in, says in verse 3, we are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Paul is beginning to outline his own credentials as a minister, and the first thing he says is that he set up no obstacle. He's caused no one to stumble. It's a short sentence, a very simple idea and easy for us to pass over. But it sets a tone for us as the church, as ministers of God's grace and this work of reconciliation. The first thing that he says is that he's not to blame for anyone stumbling, or as some translations read, he has caused no one offense. The gospel that we share may cause its own store of obstacles for people. The ideas that we profess are foreign and surprising to many people, and reconciliation itself is a difficult and painstaking work. As people who are part of this ministry of reconciliation, we need to make sure that we're not making it any more challenging than it already is. That we're not getting in the way or causing any additional offense. That we're careful in the words we speak and the actions we take because as ministers of this gospel, we are also, as Paul says, ambassadors for Christ. And we should be seen by those around us as speaking and acting on his behalf. All of this is accomplished, Paul says, with great endurance. Great endurance because it's easy to not cause offense and not make others stumble when life is good, when things are looking up, when people are listening to you and open to where you're leading them, when you're valued and you're appreciated. But this is so often not the reality of the world that we live in or the people we're called to minister to. No, instead, we must remain blameless in the face of many sufferings and many trials. We must endure the pains of this world. And Paul shares a sampling of these things. He has endured afflictions, hardships, and calamities. He has survived beatings, imprisonments, and riots. He has imposed on himself labors, sleepless nights, and hunger, all for the sake of Jesus Christ and these people who he ministers to the Corinthian community that now turns away from him. This is the second thing that comes as a little unexpected for us too, that the Christian life that we are called to is a difficult one to walk. This is sometimes surprising to us because in the West, we have become comfortable with the church and power coming hand in hand, with Christianity being the status quo, with people generally knowing the Christian story and being receptive to it. But now, as the church here in Canada, we're slowly coming to terms with this no longer being our reality. And it's a little bit jarring, but it's the challenge of the ministry that the church has been called to. I found it was interesting, even as that text was being read for us just now, that Paul writes, now is the time of God's favor. And then he goes on to list all the struggles and the trials that he's faced. You don't expect that in the time of God's favor, but Paul seems to. In fact, a few weeks ago when we looked at Pentecost in Acts 2, it struck me that the very first thing that happened to the church, as they're speaking the gospel in a myriad of languages, as they're ministering to people who understand them in their native tongues, 
is that they're mocked. They're ridiculed and they're laughed at. They've had too much to drink, somebody suggests. This is the starting point for the church and its ministry. That happened on day one. The church is born and it's mocked. The people of God minister to those who have come to seek him and they hear a voice of scorn and derision and it doesn't get any easier through the next 2,000 years of persecution and of trial. So this list of things which Paul endures should really be no surprise to us because it's the story of our history. It's the story of the church around the world. And it's the story that we're being called to live into every day of our lives. We have all had hardships in our relationships with each other and those who we long to share the gospel with. And we hear stories still this week of Christians being persecuted for their faith, even being put to death. This is the call of the church, this difficult ministry of love and reconciliation. I'm confident that somehow each of us knows the tirelessness of caring deeply for people. It's kept us awake at night and hungry through days, thinking about situations that we're in or that the people we care about are in, pleading with God to intervene or for his wisdom or for new comfort. That's what our ministry is. We should know Paul's endurance because it's our endurance as well. It's the endurance of a people called by God to be his servants in this world, to care for the people that he loves. And it's overwhelming. It's frightening. It's heartbreaking. But we endure it nevertheless and strive to not cause offense, to allow our ministry to remain blameless so that the kingdom of God might become a little bit more real in our community here at the corner of Harvard and Spadina, and in the communities that we serve in our neighborhoods and our workplaces. So this is how the church is received. This is how ministers of the gospel are received with ridicule and suspicion, with violence and with anger. And yet somehow Paul calls us to endure. But how are we to endure? As ministers of reconciliation, serving others in Christ's name, what does it look like for us to endure these things? is merely surviving them enough. Paul answers that too as he continues that with great endurance he experienced all these things by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. This list is especially intriguing to me because each point in this list seems to counter one of the afflictions and trials in his previous list. This list of how Paul endures is also how we can endure the difficulties of Christian life and a life of ministry to the people around us. And it's the first thing that's unexpected for the people who we serve and don't know the story. If you are afflicted, the natural assumption in Paul's day would have been that you're afflicted because some kind of sin in your life, some kind of wandering of heart or mind, and you're now being punished by God. But Paul says that he endures affliction with purity. It isn't sin in his life that's causing him this affliction. He's enduring it for the people he loves and cares for, and he's doing it all by setting an example of purity. 
Similarly, to a people with confidence in their justice system, to Gentiles who were born under the protection of the empire, or to Canadians under the protection of a charter. If a person is being punished or jailed, there is likely good reason for it. They've broken the law or are a nuisance to society and are finally being dealt with. But Paul insists that he endures these things in holiness of spirit. He has done nothing wrong. He is blameless but finds himself punished. This is Christian ministry in action, enduring beatings with kindness and with patience. It's almost unfathomable, but Paul is motivated in his endurance by genuine love for the people that he ministers to, even as they continue to turn against him or to misunderstand him. Paul endures all things for the sake of such people. We are called to endure these things for the sake of such people. And we endure it all in the power of God. In chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul made reference to this power of God as he wrote, We have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be clear that this extraordinary power of God belongs to God and does not come from us. Paul and his contemporaries were afflicted in every way but not crushed. These clay jars which held God's power were cracked. They looked a little worse for the wear, but light shone out through those cracks. The difficulties only made God that much more present wherever they were. And the church's story continues in the same way ever since. This endurance, though, seems strange in even the most difficult circumstances, and it defines the life of the church. As it does that, it confounds people who look in on us from the outside but it also makes clear that we are not the source of our own strength. Why should beatings be endured with kindness and not overcome with violence? Why do the afflictions we endure spur us on toward deeper care for other people? Why, instead of being bitter over what seems to throw a wrench into our lives, do we praise God and delve deeper into community? Tertullian, writing to the provincial governors of Rome as they continued to oppress and kill Christians in almost 200 CE, wrote, we are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The Christian life the divine revelation of ministry through and in the life of every Christian was entirely unexpected to an empire that sought to exterminate it by force and found that it couldn't. That in fact it was having the opposite effect. And this reality remains as a unique characteristic of Christian's ministry. It is a testimony not of Paul's strength that he endured, but of God's strength. Our story tells us that when you encounter Jesus, when the gospel takes a hold of your life, you are changed forever and you share in Christ's suffering, but not only in his suffering, in his endurance as well. And that endurance in the midst of suffering is attractive. It draws other people towards its light because it offers hope. It transforms people and communities Suffering is not unique to our story. 
The whole world is gripped by suffering and gripped by despair. But endurance is unique in our witness. And our endurance through purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God is our hope. The Holy Spirit empowers the church and makes clear that it is by its power that the church continues to advance in spite of any force that is working against it. The second way that Christian ministry is surprising and unexpected to the world around us is in, this rea- in the reality it exists within despite how it is received. In verse 8, Paul began, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well-known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Each of these pairs, these apparent paradoxes, reveals an outward appearance, an apparent veracity, something that the Corinthians would have readily thought about Paul. He had no letter of recommendation, no important credentials. He was unknown to them, but he was well known to God. He was dying. He admits himself that death was at work in him, and elsewhere he states that we are outwardly wasting away. But despite that, and contrary to all expectations, he was alive. He has great cause for sorrow at the state of the world and the people that he was serving. But he has cause for all joy because of Jesus. And as the Jewish philosopher Philo puts it, the good person, though he possesses nothing in the proper sense, not even himself, partakes of the precious things of God so far as he is capable. And through Jesus, we are more than capable of partaking in these precious things of God to truly possess everything. So too, the world perceives Christians and the church today in a very particular light. From its inception right up until now, the church has been seen in varying times and places as imposters, unknown, dying, punished, sorrowful, poor, and with nothing to offer. Those may not have seemed like very apt descriptors for the church in North America a hundred years ago, but I'm sure for many of us gathered today, some of those words ring true of the church. The narrative is the same in our culture. The church is dying. It's irrelevant to what's going on in the world. It has nothing to offer me or my life. But Paul says that these perceptions are hollow, they're empty, they're a shallow attempt at understanding something that's much bigger, that it misses what God is actually at work doing. But we get to be in on this surprising twist. We know that despite appearing irrelevant or meaningless to our culture, we have something deeply important and something profoundly transforming something that's incredibly relevant and crucial to share and reveal. We can see how this gospel message which we hold, which we ourselves are ministers of, speaks to the issues of inequality, poverty, desire for power and control and recognition that exists in the world today. As Paul might say, we are treated as irrelevant and yet are crucial. 
These are some of the challenges that await us as a community of faith, desiring to be ministers of the gospel, ministers of reconciliation to the world that is far from God. We're going to be treated in ways that don't reflect the truth of the church, of its purpose in the world and its presence in our communities. And it is only in the power of God and by his work in our lives that we can hope to help people see how even these assumptions, which seem very obvious, are in fact quite the opposite of the truths that God is working out in our midst. As Paul moves on to conclude this section of scripture, he gives us one final glimpse of his heart as somebody ministering to the people in Corinth. He writes, We have spoken frankly to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. There is no restriction in our affections, but only in yours. In return, I speak as to children. Open wide your hearts also. Where this translation translates affections, the KJV translates bowels, which is an interesting word choice and one of the few occasions where the KJV may actually be more accurate because the Greek word here meant the inner part of our being, who we actually are, our guts. Paul is effectively saying, I've spilled my guts to you. There's nothing secret, nothing hidden. It's all out there. And he's done this because of how much he loves those people. His whole life was on display for them, readily available for them. He's held nothing back. There's no piece of him that is kept secret or sacred or apart from the people that he serves, that he ministered to. He hasn't tried to hide his suffering from other people in an attempt to sell them on God or the gospel. He's been honest about the troubles he faced, but also honest about how he's able to endure them. He's not putting on any masks or any performances. He's been authentic and open, even to people who so obviously don't completely understand. Have we spilled our guts to the people we serve and we minister to? Are we ready and willing to endure hardships well with purity and patience and love in order that the world might see the kinds of amazing things that God is up to? God's means of reconciling the world to himself was through the cross of Christ. And God's continuing means of proclaiming that good news is through lives which point to the cross of Christ that demonstrate the cross of Christ, that somehow any suffering or difficulty we experience might be for the benefit of others. This is the servant leadership of Jesus. This is the life of Paul, and this is the ministry that we are welcomed into as the church, that death is at work in us, so that life might be at work in our communities and in the world. If you have been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, you are ministers of this gospel, and that ministry is difficult. All kinds of hardship may and sometimes will appear in your life, and your story will join the 2,000-year-old story of the church as you endure those difficulties. But against all anticipations of the world, you can endure them in ways that reveal something that's true about God something good about his work in you. And in ways that disarm people's expectations and cause them to pay attention to the life that you're actually living. 
as you endure, the assumptions people have about Christians and the church are pitted against the reality of your life. Are we imposters? Are we liars? Are we dying and irrelevant? And do we have nothing to offer? Or as this passage suggests, and I believe our stories testify to, is there something deeper there? The endurance of the church and its ministers, of you, causes the world to ask, how is it that against all odds and all difficulty these people continue to exist and thrive and have a reason for all joy? How is it that this person can love me so deeply, care for me so genuinely, despite all their own difficulties? What is that community like that shares in each other's sufferings and finds joy in the bleakest of moments and life at the most helpless of times? What does it mean for us here at Knox Church, for this community, to be a place where ministers of the gospel are ministered to, where we encounter a God that is drawing us into workplaces and neighborhoods, to be loving presences even in the midst of difficulty and challenge. I think that's what God has formed the church to be. I believe that Knox has 200 years of history because God has formed it and sustains its story so that it can shine a light that calls into question the suspicions and difficulties of people that they have about the church today, even in Toronto, even in this community where ideas and culture are being shaped just across the street. But it begins with each of us realizing that God has entrusted to us a ministry and we must be willing to see every aspect of our lives, good and bad, personal and professional, as part of that ministry, characterized by the character of God in us, God with us, God using us and reaching out through us to the people we interact with daily, trusting that even in difficulties, God has equipped us and empowered us and is ministering through us to this neighborhood, to our communities, to this city, and even to the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I just need to grab my bulletin. And as a community of faith that our ministers, our priests like Glenn pointed out to us at the beginning of the service, are called to pray and to bless the world, to intercede on the behalf of other people, to minister even now as we're being ministered to by God and his spirit. We gather together as this people and community of faith, and we pray together about the concerns of the world, and the concerns of this community, the situations we're aware of. Let's pray together the prayers of God's people.